76% of the people who felt like their managers were empathetic were more engaged. 50% more of those people were unlikely to leave. Welcome to the Joy Powered Workspace podcast, where we help HR and business leaders embrace joy in the workplace. I'm Susan White, owner of Susan Tinder White Consulting, an HR consulting practice. Joining me is my co-host and dear friend, Jody Curtis, owner of Purple Inc., a large-scale HR firm that I am an executive collaborator with. In today's episode, we want to talk about coaching with kindness. Although there are 71,000 certified coaches in the world, most coaching that happens in the business world occurs by managers and supervisors with their direct reports. Webster defines coaching as giving advice and instruction to someone regarding the course or process to be followed. Certainly, managers and supervisors are doing that every hour of every day. According to a LinkedIn article written by Dattran with AI dated July 24th, 2023, 73% of people who are coached believe they have improved their relationships, communication skills, interpersonal skills, work performance, work-life balance, and wellness, thanks to coaching. Wow, nice. Isn't that amazing? And most impressively, 51% of companies with a strong coaching culture report higher revenues than other companies in their industry. Many people managers are thrust into leadership jobs without training on how to coach employees. They know that they need to get the work done. And when someone isn't delivering on the manager's expectations, they don't always know the right approach to use to talk to that staff member to course correct. So we've invited a guest to help us navigate how to do it in a joy-powered way, coaching with kindness. I'd like to introduce Libby Wagner. As one of the only former poetry professors invited into the boardroom, Libby Wagner is a trusted advisor for presidents, CEOs, executive directors, and others. Her work has shaped the cultures of numerous Fortune 500 clients, including the Boeing Company, Nike, Philips, Costco, and Keurig, Dr. Pepper. Using her unique approach, programs, and seminars, she empowers those she works with to articulate what they want, why they want it, and how to ask for it, creating the poetic difference. Driven to help individuals and organizations move to their creative edge, she helps others find their voices and stand solidly and confidently in them to create work and lives they love. Libby, we are so glad that you're here. Thank you so much. It's great to be here today with both of you. Our first question is, Libby, why do you think coaching with kindness is a viable practice for managers and supervisors? Can they really get the results they need if they coach with kindness? When I first uh, started my work and started working with people, you know, they used to call what I did soft skills and it used to kind of make the hair on the back of my neck, you know, stand up because it felt like it was devaluing what I was doing. And now I don't really care what they call it, to be honest. But um, the short answer is yes, coaching with kindness does matter and they can get results. Let me give you a few statistics, okay? So uh, this is very specifically for, it was a, a study that was done uh, asking people, they asked them two questions first, like, does your manager, do you consider your manager to be, manager to be empathetic? Do you think your manager delivers and demonstrates empathy? And then following that yes or no question, then we found out these data points. 
76% of the people who felt like their managers were empathetic were more engaged. So I know like a lot of your work, we're looking at employee engagement because we know the relationships between engagement and performance, engagement and retention, which also 50% more of those people were unlikely to leave because they felt like they were working for a manager who was empathetic and demonstrated empathy. 50% felt like their workplace was more inclusive. And a lot of us are working with diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. And, you know, a lot of that is based on practice and systemic things, but a lot of it is also based on perception. And so they were perceiving that their workplace was more inclusive. 86% of them felt like the fact that their manager delivered empathy to them uh, allowed them to better navigate the demands of their job. So that's pretty significant too. Wow. And, yes. and um, yeah, and the last one is 61% felt like they could be more innovative because they had a manager who delivered empathy. So, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm a poet and a former college professor and I work inside organizations. I had to learn how to talk to business people when I first started my business. And most of the time you say, hey, how's your empathy? How's your kindness? You know, you, you might get a lot of eye rolls and uh, because that's not about the hard facts of business, but it is. Yeah. yeah. Wow. You know, too, I can't help but think here in Indiana, we've had a recent big event in that I use beloved coach for many years. Bob Knight recently passed away. I don't know if you follow sports at all, but he was known, a lot of strong opinions on him both ways, but he was not a man known for coaching with kindness (laughs) that had positive results in a different way, but I'm with you. I think we can coach people with kindness. Yeah. You know what though, Jody? that's really interesting. You mentioned that. So I do know who Bobby Knight is. I didn't know he passed away. That's I'm that's so sad for um, Indiana. I actually went to high school and undergrad school in uh, Kentucky where, you know, uh, basketball is a religion. And, um, and in fact, um, to the horror of my high school boyfriend, because I, I grew up in the military, so we moved around a lot, but to the horror of his family, you know, one night at dinner, I've said, well, who's Adolf Rupp? Because everyone was just talking about him and talking about him. And, you know, so that, I know I was, I was in trouble after that, but you know, what's interesting though. I feel like I have read more things about him and I know he was known for his passion and volatile personality and things like that. And here's what I would say about that. Sometimes coaching with kindness isn't necessarily gentle. And I'm guessing that many people who who now maybe he maybe he was a jerk. I don't I don't know. I don't think so. But um I think that the the perception of of kindness and coaching with kindness means like you're sweet and soft spoken and that's not it at all actually. It's really about a balance of accountability and respect and it's really about a, about how we are what our intention is, you know, as we're approaching. So I don't know how far I can go into the sports metaphor with you today, but I, <laughs> I, I give it a try. You've yeah. already exhausted my knowledge of basketball, so it's good. <laughs> it is a great point, though, as he was very well known for caring about his players. So, mm-hmm. 
But how, you know, in a post-COVID workplace, or often we call it a, a VUCA now, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, how is maybe this concept of coaching with kindness different in, in that kind of workspace? Well, I think there's a couple of things that uh, organizations need to think about. And, you know, I know a lot of your audience might be HR professionals, people who are business partners and supporting what's going on in organizations. So I don't know about you, but a lot of my clients are still having a hard time staffing. They're still having a hard time recruiting the right people. Um, you know, making sure they don't have, you know, they have vacant hundreds of vacancies for months and months and months. And I do think that some of that is related to the following, which is many companies succeeded in spite of themselves prior to the pandemic. I think also they said they they had sort of rules like I had a rule, right? Like a lot of what I do is about helping people uh, get ready for and have really important conversations, whether that's one-on-one or with their teams or or things like that. And people would say to me, well, don't you have a virtual program? And I'd say, no, no, I don't have it. No, this has to be done in person. This is, you know, all the things, right? Like you had, we had all these rules about how work needed to be done and what could happen and what could not happen. And so I think, I think many, you know, companies that had maybe a lot of things going for them, but they didn't pay attention to how their employees' engagement and connectivity was was impacting. Um, these people, you know, a lot of them just said, I'm not going back to that. And uh, so we're looking at people who um, have been successful, but who haven't paid attention to, or uh, let's just say this, they focus their intention solely on um, things that are transactional, solely on the bottom line, things like, and it's not that those things aren't important. It's just that the bottom line's at the bottom. Like it's the last thing that (laughs) happens once you do all the other things. So this workplace of volatility, uncertainty, et cetera, I think that the companies um, that I'm working with and I'm seeing are paying much more attention to how do we help, how do we equip people to be able to deal with constant chronic uncertainty. And that's really about them having the skills to practice, you know, self-care, to create relationships, to manage their own workload, you know, all those kinds of things. And to be willing to be in the conversation, even when it's messy and we, and there's lots of ambiguity. Libby, would you walk us through the primary elements of coaching with kindness? My work is based on some research that was done by a a few psychologists, um, you know, 30 or so years ago. And what they did was they looked at what are the behaviors that can create an environment conducive to change. That's honestly the short version of it. And, you know, you're I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, like Marcus Buckingham's first break, all the rules came out at the end of the 90s. It was one of the first times that they said, well, well, like, what is it that the leaders are doing to help support great performance? Because most of the time, we're just like looking at the performers and saying, well, what does this cool person do, right? But what we we hadn't looked at before was like, what's the environment around this person that supports that high performance, high engagement, etc. 
So what the, the research that I work with found was that there are four behavior groupings that create a high trust environment that allows people to be highly engaged, have high trust, perform better, et cetera. Like I always say to people like, all the news is good on this side of the page and the, all the stuff you don't want on the other. And it sounds so simple. It can't possibly be true, but here's what it is. It's high levels of respect behaviors, high levels of empathy behaviors, high levels of specificity, and high levels of genuineness. And so part of what what I like to look at and help people do is, first of all, like everybody's got a poster with those words on the board. We know that. We all look at company values. And on some level or another, that's what's operating there is respect, empathy, specificity, and genuineness. The language might be different, but that's what it is. But what most companies don't do is define those things behaviorally. Because I've never met anyone, even the most curmudgeonly, ornery, nobody wants to work with this person, who says, I'm so disrespectful. (laughs) Like, it's just the way I am, you know? Or like, I see no need for specificity. Please read my mind. Like, everybody thinks they're doing great. And so so part of what the elements of coaching with kindness, I think, you know, there's lots of methodologies and there's, you know, lots of ways to coach people. But I think we have to get down to the behavior level, because what we found out in the research was when uh, someone was demonstrating high levels of these four core dimensions, whether they were a manager, a friend, a coach or whatever, a teacher, that there were there was this environment that was conducive to great change and to satisfaction. And you all know this, right? Like it sounds like common sense when someone feels like they're in a trusting, safe environment, they get creative, they get innovative, they go above and beyond. They, you know, like, so it's not like hard to think about that, but it's not easy to do. And Libby, tell me a little bit more about specific or at least what I'm thinking on that one is like setting specific expectations. Is that? Yes, exactly. Yes. And here's the, here's the thing about these four elements. So high specificity. So just what you're saying, Jody. high specificity. So we've got, we've got the deadline and we've got the expectation set and we've got a model for what it looks like when it's done well, like all that stuff, right? So high specificity with low respect is no good. Because what that means is the person feels micromanaged, controlled, not trusted. But in truth, when we balance it out and we deliver high levels of specificity with respect, the person feels like they're being set up for success. And so most of the time we're out of balance in the way that we're coaching. We're, you know, like we get frustrated and we're like, why isn't this person doing what I want them to do? Okay, I better get more clear, right? So now I go in with all the specificity and, but it's very low respect. There's no listening, there's no conversation, so on. So we don't get the results we want, but the opposite is also true. So here I'm a manager. I don't want to be a micromanager. I don't want to seem controlling. Hey, this is a professional I hired. They should know what they're doing. So I don't want to give them too many details, right? Like I used to do, uh, I've worked in all kinds of industries and um, including um, prisons. And, you know, what's the worst thing you can do? 
here's your keys. Good luck out there. Right? Like <laughs> not setting the person up for success. All right. But we do it all the time. So specificity, I used to say, uh, I don't have any tattoos, but I used to say if I was going to get a tattoo, it would say be specific across <laughs> my forehead because mostly we're not. I love that because I always tell people, I think the key to life as a parent, as a spouse, as a leader is to set good expectations. But I like that word specificity even better. That means even more than that. You're preaching to the choir here because I could talk about expectations all the time. I actually wanted I wanted to write a book. Um, now, see, you all probably get it. But I wanted to write a book called Why Performance Management is Sexier than Sales. But, <laughs> but see, now you laugh because you get it, right? Yes. But like people would be like, oh, interesting. But it's really all about this idea that we don't set clear expectations for people. We have terribly vague job descriptions. We don't have any clear performance expectations. And we wonder why we're not getting what we want and why it's so hard and why we hate the review process. All the things like, don't even get me started, Jody. Yeah. My husband always says the key to a happy marriage is low expectations. (laughs) I, I know and I think we've had a happy marriage. I, oh. You know what, though? I have to tell you, though, I'm going to say, Susan, whenever I teach some of these classes, honestly, sometimes most it's mostly men. I'm just saying, like, not not being gender specific here. They'll literally come to me and, and say well, on the section about specificity, they'll be like, you could you like tell me how to talk to my wife about this? <laughs> I, I think she wants me to read her mind. Oh. Like, oh, that's a different class. But yes, yeah. I yes. can yes. teach you about yes. that. <laughs> Um, it's funny you brought up Marcus Buckingham. Jody and he are really tight. I know. I've got I, a photo of the two of them together. I love Marcus Buckingham. Really? I love yes, him. Yes, I yeah. love him too. But what was um, first break all the rules? That was yeah. the, I lost that book for a second. Yeah, but okay. that was really probably the first business book I read that I felt like changed my life. Change my work life at least. And of course, Marcus was connected at that time with the Gallup organization and with the Clifton Strengths movement. And my number one strength is maximizer, which is bringing out the best in people. So I am driven by this fact of helping others be better. But I know those are my intentions and they don't always, I know that people observe my behaviors and not my intentions. And so they, that doesn't always connect with them that I can come across this very critical when really my intention is to help them be better. So how can we know that or make that connection really sometimes between if our behaviors match our intentions? Yeah, that's a great uh, question. And also, um, thanks for the context there, because I I understand the maximizer strength. That's one of mine, too. I mean, here's what I like to say to people when they feel like there's a gap there. And um, one is to say, like, literally at the conversation level, um, Jody, I would say, Framing is your friend. And what I mean by that is when you are going into a conversation with someone, it's a coaching conversation or it's a situation where you're trying to convey this passion for 
you know, hey, I want to help you do better, be better, feel less stress, pain, et cetera. Like all of that is part of your um, your own intention is that you actually share that, that you actually frame your conversation, you frame your feedback by stating right up front where you're coming from. And again, it sounds so simple, but we don't do it sometimes. We just like kind of race right in there with our feedback instead of um, letting someone know what our actual intention is. I think the other thing that, so in my work, you know, going to someone and trying to respectfully resolve an issue or, or talking to them about something that they're doing that you would like them to change, right? Like a coaching conversation or a feedback conversation. So I use the word confrontation, which is very confronting because there's all these negative connotations about that word. But in truth, if you look at the root of it, to confront means to come in front of. And if we are willing to come in front of, to have a conversation about something that matters, that's a courageous conversation. But the other mistake that people make is that they focus their language on what they don't want instead of what they want. So for example, um, this is my like tried and true example. And everyone who knows me is gonna be like, oh, she's using that one again, but it works. So you <laughs> say to a small child, don't slam the door, right? Their brain doesn't see don't, their brain sees slam the door. So we get the door slamming again. But what we really want is please close the door quietly when you come in. But we do this all the time at work. So if someone hears you say, hey, stop doing this, don't do this, change this, this is the wrong way, etc. If they hear that first, they're going to completely misinterpret your intention. Because emotionally, they now are needing to defend themselves. That's great advice. Isn't it? It's really heavy. I'm going to work on it with that with my grandson. When he does something, I'm going to instead of saying, don't do that. Yeah. Here's what I'd like you to do. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Thank you for that yeah. insight. So can you tell us, and from your opinion, how might coaching with kindness really lead to a more joy-filled experience at work and a better culture? Well, one of the things that I like to tell people, I wrote a, a little book called, What Will You Do With Your 90,000 Hours? And um, I was invited to give a keynote uh, to a group of people who were graduating actually from an academy and they were they were going to be prison guards. And it's not a job that I would want um, because I think that's really hard and it just I, I wouldn't be suited to it. Right. But I love graduations. I love celebrations. And I was like, how can I be inspiring? Because glad you're doing this and I'm not is not a very inspiring, you know, talk, right? <laughs> so I started, I started thinking about it and I started thinking about work and, and our relationship to work. And so I did a little bit of, I like to call it poet's math where I said, all right, if I start working here and I retire here and I re this many hours a week, blah, blah, blah. And it was 90,000 hours. And the number was so massive that I just began using it and saying to people, okay, look, you're going to spend 90,000 hours, not with your grandson, not with your loved one, not doing a hobby you love, but with these people that you didn't pick, some of whom you don't like that much. So what do we do to make that 90,000 hours amazing? And, you know, so some of it, I think, you know, having joy at work, thinking about how my work can be more joy filled and why and what the impact coaching with kindness could have on it is that 
you know, as you know, when employees are engaged, like all the news is good. I don't, is there any bad news when someone's engaged? Do you, I can't think of any negative. No, no, no. Right. Because, because who doesn't want to be engaged in what they're doing? You know, like I'm, I'm offering up my nine, part of my 90,000 hours to you. That's precious. That's sacred. So I think that when we're thinking about like supporting managers, leaders, supervisors, you know, whoever these people are that can impact, right? So there, cause there's different things. If I'm going to increase my joy at work, you know, some of that's my responsibility, right? Like some of that's about how am I caring for myself? How am I managing my workload? How am I knowing what to say yes and what to say no to? How do I ask for what I need or want? And what happens if I don't get it? You know, like some of those things are up to me and having those kinds of skills. And I feel like managers and supervisors are often in the position, though, of coaching people to take that responsibility, but also coaching them to say, hey, you know, you matter here. Here are the expectations and we want you to be successful. So let me match up my behaviors to show you that. And I also think, you know, like a lot of people talk about work-life balance. Like if my if my life felt better, more balanced, et cetera, well, I don't even know if I believe in that. What I do believe is that what we want is a right relationship to our livelihood. Ooh. Right? Like if we're in a bad, we don't want our work to be like a bad boyfriend, right? <laughs> like we, don't, we don't want that. We want We want to be in the right kind of relationship to how we earn a living. And most of that responsibility is on us. But I do think that the workplace and the people in leadership roles and those who support leaders can be really smart about creating an environment that's the most conducive to people showing up and giving their best work. I mean, even I'm getting it this afternoon, I'm gonna go do a team tune up with a group and they've had some struggles. But the truth is they're choosing to work there. They're saying, I'm going to give you some of my 90,000 hours. So on the one hand, we should value that as an organization and use the core dimensions of respect, empathy, specificity, and genuineness, which create kindness. But it also creates accountability. And I don't think those are separate from each other. Yeah, that's excellent. And Libby, what about you personally? What's a change that you've made in your own career that boosted your joy at work? Well, I think that there's, you know, something to think about too, that, you know, I was thinking about this morning on my walk and and being able to talk with you and to talk about like, you know, joy. And I think that, um, you know, there are three people I love who are, um, um, you know, sources of inspiration for me. Um, one is the um, poet Ross Gay, who I believe might be in Indiana. Anyway, uh, he wrote a book called, well, one of his books of poems is called Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, which is pretty much <laughs> one of the best titles ever. But he also wrote a book called uh, The Book of Delights, which is a collection of short essays. And he made a decision that he was going to write a small essay every day uh, about delight. And But the truth is, when you read it, there's everything about the human condition is woven in. You know, we only have joy. We only have delight because we know what it is not. And it's not about having like a spiritual bypass, you know, also. 
And I think that's really important. And I think, um, I, so I love his work. I love David White's work. He's a friend of mine and a colleague, another poet who uh, wrote a great book called Consolations and has a really famous poem called Sweet Darkness, which is really about, you know, when we pretend that joy is a constant state, it's elusive. It's not the way it is. You know, like the truth is work is hard sometimes. The truth is people are messy and all of those things. So you asked me a question about what I do. And so one of the things I do is I stay inspired by reading things and being around people that inspire me. But I also take time to invest in my own development and growth um, so that I can stay curious, so that I can, like, it's a radical act to be kind. It's a radical act to be happy. I mean, if we look around the world and we listen, and this isn't about ignoring things that are important that are happening that we might need to, you know, be involved in, but it's easy to slip into cynicism. It's easy to slip into these other places, the opposite of joy. So for me, I continually invest in my own development and growth. I make sure that I do things that inspire me. At the beginning of the pandemic, I did this. Um, you can go and look at it online if you want to. And I have really bad hairdos because remember, we didn't get to have our hair done for like right. six months. <laughs> That's okay. right. I'm just, just saying that. That's my disclaimer. But I decided to do this little video series, very like just on my iPhone called One Small Thing. And the the idea was, well, what's the one thing I can do today, today to increase my wholeheartedness? and joy and presence. What's the one thing? And so I did a series of 10 of them. And it was it was for me as much as it was for, you know, anyone else because that was a hard time. You know, it was a hard time to sure be was. in my house by myself and, you know, things like that. So well, thank you so much for, for sharing. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Um Ross Gay is uh, with Indiana University. He's awesome. Yeah, he's amazing. Finally, before we let you go, Libby, how could our listeners reach you if they were interested in getting any coaching or guidance or talking further about this topic? Yeah, you can find me uh, at Libby Wagner at LibbyWagner.com. That's my email address, but just LibbyWagner.com is my website. There's information there about the kinds of things I do, and you can sign up for my, um, I just send out one um, one blog uh, or article monthly and uh, let you know about special events, things like that. But um, and upcoming uh, next year, um, usually working with me is, um, you know, either in person or virtually, but um, we also have some new self-paced classes coming up. So um, fearless and fair communication and other things like that. Um, so yeah, you can find me on the website or all those places. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you both. Thank you. Jody. I thought Libby was very good. She gave me some really good insights. I agree. She's all up in our joy power philosophy <laughs> for sure. So I love that. She really is. And I don't really know any poet. Now I feel like I know a poet. <laughs> yeah, I really loved when she said that we have 90,000 hours of work. So while she was, pro I was processing that and I realized I've got more than 90,000 under my belt. I'm in overtime now. I, <laughs> I should be, I should be charging more for my consulting. I'm doing overtime work. That's anyway, right. I found that fascinating. I agree. And a really important reminder to us to think, 
I'm how am I spending it? And am I spending it in a place where I want to be and where I'm making a difference and where I can be kind? Absolutely. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. Susan, for our listener question today, someone asked us, I'm starting a new employee relations job that has been framed to me as having a big relationship building element. Some advice on building relationships with a diverse group of people at all levels and backgrounds through an HR lens would be helpful. I really like this question. I do think in employee relations, our number one skill has to be connecting with other people, building rapport, developing relationships, because we need individuals to trust us. When there's an employee that is coming forward because they've got a concern, perhaps they don't feel they're being treated fairly. Maybe they feel that they're being harassed. Who knows what it is? They come to you and you've got to be able to build rapport with them in order to have any kind of trust. You've got to be able to relate and to connect with them. Same thing with every manager and supervisor that you are going to be consulting with as an employee relations person. You need for them to trust your advice. And for that to happen, you have to have a good relationship with them, right? At least have to have respect with each other. So ideas um, that I have, first of all, I think you've got to be very visible in your organization. People have to know who you are. The more that you can show up and greet people and meet people, not in the crisis of an employee relations issue, but just be present uh, when there's volunteer activities to do, when there's meetings, speaking up, being curious, spending time with different work groups, trying to understand the real jobs that they have, the work that they do. Um, scheduling coffees and times to sit down with colleagues, with leaders, with managers to introduce yourself and to begin that process about learning their business. I think that's a really smart technique. I would schedule listening sessions. If you're employee relations, you really do want to know what's on employees' minds and not necessarily just at employee engagement survey time, but throughout the year. Uh, Use opportunities to meet with new staff members, maybe have a coffee with everyone who started in the last quarter, Uh, maybe a listening session a couple times a year with just a cross section of employees to find out what's on their worry list or what what it is that they um, have concerns over. I think sharing your vision of what employee relations is and what it should be and the kind of awesome workspace that you're trying to make sure your organization has, sharing it, let people know what it is that you believe. I think that helps build relationships and build rapport. And then I think it opens up your opportunity when you're meeting with employees and learning to hear about what's good and bad that's happening. And it's going to help you, I think, formulate the type of employee relations work you want to do. Jody, anything I've missed or anything you might add? I think all your advice was spot on. And just thinking, you know, they say you don't want to go to a banker when you need a banker, right? You want to go before you need a loan. I think that it takes time to build trust. And the more people can spend time with you and get to know you and even small bursts that they're more likely than to bring difficult situations or to get your advice. So true. Keep at it. It's time for In the News. HRdive.com posted an article November 1st, 2023 by Carolyn Christ entitled, Four-Day Workweek Postings Are Increasing, But Still Are Rare, Indeed says. According to Indeed's Hiring Lab, 
0.3% of all jobs posted in September 2023 advertised a four-day work week, which was up from 0.1% in 2019. <laughs> Interesting. No, not it's not a huge part of our of our world. The increase has been in veterinary, dentistry, and manufacturing, but yeah. not in office settings. Interesting. Now the manufacturing sector kind of makes sense to me, Jody, because you know, some large unions such as the UAW have made a four-day work week uh, a contract negotiation item. Mm-hmm. So that's certainly on the table sometimes with collective bargaining units. But I am kind of surprised why veterinary and dentistry are on the list. I would think those are two things that you really have to be present for. Right. But, you know, my doctor works four days a week, too. Yeah. So, you know what? My doctor does too, now that you say that, maybe three and a half days. Yeah. So maybe it's, you know, they're doing a lot of hands on care, but they're doing it in a compressed work week. Right. So interesting. But it is interesting to me, too, that it is still so rare when both you and I worked four days previously in our careers. So Yes, you're right. Well, this article cites a ResumeBuilder.com report that said three-fourths of office workers say they would switch jobs if they could move to a four-day work week. There's there's big demand out there. And one-third said they would take a pay cut if offered a four-day schedule. Wow. Which is when I worked a four-day work week, I did take a pay cut. It was well worth it to me. Right. However, employees of office workers don't appear to be very interested in making the move. So we launched an episode of this podcast on January 31st, 2022, entitled The Four-Day Work Week, which is worth another listen if you're thinking of exploring making the move in your workplace. Nice. Good reminder. Well, thanks for joining us today. Tune in next time and make it a joy-powered day. Thank you. If you would like SHRM recertification credit for listening to this podcast, please visit getjoypowered.com slash SHRM. You'll find an evaluation of the podcast. And once you complete the evaluation, you will see the SHRM recertification credit code and a link to a proof of participation certificate. Again, that's getjoypowered.com slash SHRM. Thank you for listening, and thanks for your dedication to the HR profession. If you like this show, please tell a few friends about us and let us know what you thought by leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. You can find more information on our podcast, our books, our blogs, and more at Get joypowered.com. We're at joypowered on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And you can send us an email at joypowered at gmail.com. Make it a joy-powered day.